Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the music that we shared, the fun that we have, the celebration that goes on as Christians. We have more reason to celebrate than anybody else on the face of the earth. And we're so thankful, Lord, for the music that you've given Paul and his band, and that we can participate and worship you, Father, in so many different ways. Bless now the teaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank the choir tonight for their fine rendition of all those old hymns. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, if I would have had a band like that in the church I grew up in, my whole outlook on Christianity would have been far different from a younger age. I used to go to church thinking, man, church is so boring. And uh, to have, you know, music that I grew up with and that I enjoy hearing makes a big difference. And imagine the... Uh, uh, Eyebrows as Paul has a daughter, his second year of college, Paul? Last year of college. And, uh, you know, a couple kids in college. And, and uh, when she gets to introduce her dad, this is my dad. <laughs> hey, that's your dad? <laughs> that's pretty cool, dad. <laughs> well, tonight we look at chapter 16, which is a chapter on rebellion. A guy who was in the ministry, a guy by the name of Korah, doesn't like Moses' leadership, and he makes no bones about it. And Moses has to represent God when people are against him. Now, Proverbs, the 15th chapter, says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. How many times have you been tempted when somebody levels an accusation, a criticism, a negative remark against you? You have just the right comeback. I mean, you have a tailor-made cut that would just devastate them, and it's at the perfect time. There's people around watching. You think, this would hurt. But a soft answer will turn away wrath. I've told you before the famous story of Winston Churchill, who had quite a tongue. He was quite an orator. The British statesman, though, had his wits matched by another woman in the British Empire named Lady Astor, who had also a sharp tongue. And they would often go at it, and they would do it in public. And it was said at one occasion when Churchill and Lady Astor were at some public event that she said to him publicly, Sir, if you were my husband, I'd put arsenic in your tea. To which he replied, Madam, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> now, a soft answer would have just stopped it right there. But it's hard to do that. Or the occasion when it was another public gathering and Churchill was kind of verbose and he had a little too much to drink and Lady Astor said to him, Sir, you're drunk in the midst of everybody watching. Meant to be an embarrassing cut. Sir, you're drunk. To which Churchill replied, Madam, you're ugly. <laughs> and in the morning I will be sober. Why is it that some of you men are writing that down right now? You shouldn't do that. Now Moses has had it. He's had it not only up to here, but he's had it from so many different directions. His own family has come against him. Aaron and Miriam came to him and said, Moses, you're not the only one that God speaks to or through. You know, we've been used pretty mightily by, by God as well. So he had his people in his own family that criticized him. 
In this chapter, his own leadership comes against him. People that should be on his team, his management team, his ministry team, they come to him and they bring 250 others in the camp of Israel as an uprising against Moses. And then eventually all of the people have been sold this bill of goods and they join in. They chime in with the rest of the people. And uh, at the end of this chapter, if we ever get to it, um, you'll see that. We'll eventually get to it tonight or next week. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Koath, so he's from the priestly a line. He's a Kohathite, the son of Levi. This isn't the guy who makes jeans. This is, of course, the priestly tribe. With Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. Now, in the New Testament... This is used as one of those benchmark examples of what not to do. In fact, Jude, when he writes about false prophets and rebellious people, he uses many metaphors to write about them. And in Jude, it's only one chapter long, verse 11, he says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, they have run greedily after the error of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. So that is used as an example, and it's not a good example. He says, woe unto them. And woe in the Bible is a denouncement. It's not a good word. It's not like the modern-day, whoa, dude, gnarly. It's like, whoa, you know, woe is me, judgment. God, in the book of Isaiah, eight times says, woe unto the nation of Israel, because he's about to judge them. And so here is a guy who should be on his team who is leveling reproach and Woe unto them, they have gone in the rebellion of Korah. Verse 3, they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? Now, this is not too far off of the example of Satan. Remember Satan's position, created as an angelic being. He was the angel of light. He was the light bearer. He was sort of like the musician of heaven. Timbrels, and he was decorated beautifully and uh, in charge of all sorts of, uh, of the lights and the musical um, perhaps choirs of heaven. But he said in his heart, I will exalt myself above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. And he wasn't satisfying in being number one minus one. He wanted to be number one, period. He wasn't happy with his position. It wasn't enough for him. He wanted to be in charge. He thought, you know, I could do that. And so he caused a rebellion, and a third of the angels, the Bible says, fell with them. And here's a guy that you wouldn't expect to complain. But not only does he complain, but he takes a whole group of people. Now, it takes, I think, a pretty skilled leader to start a rebellion like this. This is not a small incident. 
you've got to be able to at least go to the tents of the other leaders to pull this off and get them on your side. We don't know what happened, but it could be an example like, you know, he comes into the tent of one of the leaders of the tribes of Israel and says, you know, Moses thinks he's hot stuff. You've noticed that probably. And actually, you're as anointed as he is. God's spirit is on you as well. Why should he represent you like he is? Why, why should he think God only speaks to him? We've had problems with Moses before, uh, Miriam and I, and uh, uh, Aaron wasn't involved in this one, but, you know, Miriam and Aaron, and, you know, he, he's had a lot of problems. And so I'm going to go to Moses. Are you with me? Yeah, sure, I'm with you. Okay. So he had to have some kind of skilled prowess to be able to even pull this off. And he brings this rebellion against Moses. Why then do you exalt yourself above the congregation of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Ouch. Of course, it wasn't like he fell on his face in stumbling, but he was falling on his face in anguish as he came before the Lord. If you remember another classic example of rebellion, a guy named Absalom, the son of King David, and he had the same approach. It says he took 50 guys and stood at the gates of Jerusalem, and he had them go before him, and he had his chariots, and as people from all of the tribes of Israel were going up to Jerusalem, there would Absalom be. And they would come with some lawsuit, some case, and Absalom would say, hey man, how you doing? And he would bow and kiss their hand and, you know, play the politician to get the votes. Kiss their babies, perhaps. Say, vote for me, next king. And uh, so he would say, well, what are you doing here? He said, well, I, I have a lawsuit. I have a case against my neighbor. This thing has happened in my township. And Absalom would listen and he would stroke his chin and he would, you know, wow, man. And he'd sympathize with him and he would say, you know, you've got a good case. Oh, that I were judge in Israel. If only I were in charge in Israel, I would make sure that you get justice for that. But you know, the king doesn't have any representatives for you. He's just too busy. He's just too important. But if only I were in charge, I'm with you, man. And it says he did that every day, and he turned the hearts of the children of Israel away from King David. And there was a rebellion. Well, even years before, out in the desert is the potential for a rebellion against Moses. Now, the charges are is that he exalts himself. Is that a true charge? No, of course not. Anybody who has read the history of Moses knows that this isn't Moses' style. This is not his M.O. He's not one to exalt himself. Remember when God called him in the desert? What was his response? Yeah, don't send me. I've got a lot of excuses. God came to him back in Exodus chapter 3 and says, Moses, I'm going to use you to be the leader to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt and from the Pharaoh's hand. And he said, Lord, who am I that I could represent you or lead the children of Israel out of bondage? God said, basically, never mind who you are, but you can rest in who I am. Go for it. He said, well, Lord, what if they ask me who sent you? And they want to know a name. I don't have the answers. Well, just tell them I am that I am sent you. Don't worry about that. I'll cover your bases. Well, Lord, what if they don't believe me? What if they say, God didn't send you? Now what am I going to do? They're going to think I made this whole thing up. And he said, well, there's a, um, you have a rod, throw it down. He threw it down, it turned into a snake. He said, grab it by the tail. He grabbed it by the tail, it turned into a rod again. He said, if they give you any hassle, do that. 
That will rattle them, no pun intended. <laughs> and then if that doesn't work, put your hand in your cloak and pull it out. And it turned leprous, white as snow. Put it back in again. He said, he did it. It came out perfect. He said, if they don't believe the first one, do that. That'll get their attention. Now you'd think Moses would say, okay, listen, that's a miracle enough. I'll go for it. But he said, well, Lord, now listen. I am not eloquent in speech. I can't do it. I'm not equipped as a spokesman. Don't worry, said God. I will be with your mouth. I will make you eloquent. I will put my spirit upon you. I'll enable you to represent me. And then he finally said his fourth excuse is, oh, God, send somebody else. See, it wasn't that he couldn't do it. He didn't want to do it. Don't hassle me. Find another dude to do it. And then it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, all right, I'm going to use Aaron, your brother. He's not a chicken. He can speak. I'll put my spirit upon you and give you the message. You tell it to him. He'll tell it to Pharaoh. All that to show that Moses wasn't the kind of guy to exalt himself at all. And they knew it. At least Aaron knew it. But the accusation, though untrue, was leveled against Moses. He fell on his face and spoke to Korah and all of his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You take too much upon yourselves. You sons of Levi. So it's like, all right, fine. Showdown tomorrow. Okay, corral. You bring your censers in hand. We'll bring our censers. And let's see what God has to say about this. Let's just take it right to the boss. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing to you that God, the God of Israel, has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation and to serve him? Now, why is it that they even rebelled? It could be. I think the bottom line is they were jealous. These Kohathites, Korah looked and saw the robes of the high priest, perhaps, as they were upon Aaron. And they dazzled. They were different from his clothes. They were different from his position. And all of the people respected him. He thought, man, I'd like to have that job. I'd like people to notice me. I'd like to be a high priest. And so the rebellion. Moses said, fine, let's see whom God has chosen. But I like this. Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord? to stand before the congregation and serve him, and that he has brought you near to himself and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you? Are you seeking the priesthood also? He's saying, you know, you'd think that you'd just be thrilled to serve in any capacity. God has chosen you, given you a gift, given you a capacity. There's a lot of people in Israel that don't do what you do. You're a Kohathite, man. You're, you're close up. You work in the tabernacle. There's millions of people in this camp that love to have your job, your status, your family line, and they don't. Why can't you just be satisfied with where God has put you? Why do you seek the, the high priesthood as well? 
Why aren't you just satisfied with the position God has given to you? Now, there are positions in the body of Christ, positions in the church, that seem to people to be attractive because of the visibility, of the recognition. And a person might say, you know, I'd like to be recognized once in a while. I don't like being backstage, so to speak, in the ministry, on the prayer team, in the children's ministry, in the parking lot crew at night where it's dark and nobody sees. Now, I'm not second judging your motivations. I'm thrilled for the way you serve and you do it with all of your heart. But there is that temptation to look at other parts of the body because they're visible, sort of like eyes and noses and lips and hands, and say, I'd like to do that. Paul the Apostle talked about the body of Christ, well, the church as a body. It was one of his favorite analogies, and I think it's a good analogy because his point was is you need all the parts in the body to function. You can't all be eyeballs. You'd have a goofy-looking body. Or if everybody were an ear, you know, you could hear really well, but you couldn't see or walk anywhere. So you need balance, and you need everybody doing it together. In the New Testament, let's just turn there quickly. Look how quickly. See, I had it pre-marked. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. We must first of all recognize variety. One of the things I love about God is that he is a God of variety. When I travel, I get to see different types of terrain. Aren't you glad it doesn't all look the same? Aren't you glad that the whole world isn't a flat grain field or all mountains or all ocean and, and, and a few islands? Well, that would kind of be nice, but there's variety. There's deserts, there's mountains. God is a God of variety. The same with people. God makes us different. That's the enjoyable thing about fellowship is Christ is uniquely manifested in and through each one of us. Instead of a mold, a cookie-cutter Christian, get saved, get stamped to look, act, and talk like this, and everybody must do that. Instead, there's tremendous variety, and I love that about God. And he gives gifts differently. What if at Christmas your parents gave everybody in your family the same gift every Christmas? White t-shirts and underwear. Every Christmas. Same thing. You know, it'd be a boring Christmas, wouldn't it? No matter how much they say, but you need these. These are good for you. You've got holes in your other ones. Hey, listen, I want some variety here. Well, in the body of Christ, there's variety, and, and we must recognize that. 
And then we have to emphasize unity. Verse 12, as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand... I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? Now God has set members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. Imagine what would happen if right before I was coming out on the platform to teach, my foot decided not to cooperate. My foot said, stop right there, Skip. I'm tired of this place of not being seen. I'm not going to go out there tonight. What good does it do for me to follow you and cooperate with you anyway? All they do is see your lips move, your hands move, your eyes, your nose, your chin, your teeth. They don't see me. You know, I've been walking around, following you around, leading you around for, I've been a faithful foot. I'm not going to go out there unless you take your shoe off and your sock off and let them see me. I want them to get a good look at me. I'd say, oh, that stinks. Forget it. Think of all the parts of your body that are necessary but not visible. What if your lungs decided they wanted more exposure? What if they were able to talk and say, I'm tired of this place of no visibility. I want people to see me. Unveil me. What if your pituitary decided it didn't like its place tucked away in the cella tersica? It wanted exposure. You'd die. So many parts of our body are not visible. In fact, the most vital organs are not visible. But they're very important. And so there's eyes, there's noses, there's hands. But, you know, you can't all have the place of visibility. But here's Cora. I want the place of visibility. I'm jealous. I want your job. I want to be like the high priest instead of cooperating. By the way, the body of Christ, one of the most frustrating things you can ever, ever be involved in is trying to be what you're not. Is trying to be something God has never made you or try to function with a gift, pretend you have a gift that you don't have. The f most freeing thing is to be who you are. Find out the gifts you have. Exercise them according to the grace God has given you. It's great. And even people with the same gifts exercise them differently. The gift of evangelism. Not everybody says, I'd like you to come forward and receive Christ. But you know, I've watched certain evangelists and certain preachers who try to put on a southern accent. Now, I do it just because I like to imitate everybody and anybody, but I mean, they actually, it's like, that's goofy. You don't even sound like that normally. But it's like, well, I've got to. I've got the evangelical anointing. There are evangelists who are great at one-on-one, -on -one, lifestyle evangelism, or door-to-door. -door. That drives me nuts. I don't like going door-to-door. -door. I did it as a kid, but just playing tricks. I never did it for evangelism. <laughs> Some people love to knock on a door, cold turkey, just share. I don't. Other people are timid of crowds, timid of going door to door, but they love to write letters. And they're gifted evangelists as they write to different friends, acquaintances, 
Or they write books or pamphlets that are very, very uh, to the heart, to the point. So back to our point, Korah is rebelling against Moses. He wasn't content with his part of uh, uh, where he was in Israel. And Moses says, you ought to just be happy with what God calls you to do. Verse 11, therefore you and all of your company are gathered together against the Lord. You think you're rebelling against me. I didn't ask for this job. God is the one who found me out in the desert. I'm just obeying. You ought to as well. You're rebelling against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and said uh, to call them. But they said, we will not come up. A little power struggle. I want control. Now it's just open rebellion. Moses uh, called them. They wouldn't come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Hello. Did you hear what they said? God said, I'm going to deliver you out of bondage and take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. And now they're saying, why did you take us out of a land flowing with milk and honey? What? Listen, I've been to Egypt. It's not flowing with milk and honey. Oh, yeah, there's the Nile River, and they can have vegetable gardens because of the water that's there. And uh, they had leeks and garlics and onions and whips across their back and a large building program that broke their backs. And they complained and cried out to God, yet they're not remembering all of the hardships. We've talked before on Sunday nights about selective memory disorder. What I mean by that is when we look back, we often look back nostalgically without all the facts, right? I remember how it used to be. I've seen even young Christians come and they say, Oh man, it was great. I miss all my friends from the world. It was such a great experience. They accepted me for who I was. I kind of miss the old friends. I miss the worldly gang. Here I am as a Christian. I'm going through trials. Yeah, really. Go back to those nights where you were so lonely, your heart was broken, you were aching. You had no meaning and purpose in life. The next morning when you woke up in a pool of your own vomit because you had too much to drink. Oh, yeah, those great times. And you missed the pathway to hell. I mean, there you had Your future was all laid out before you. Hell, forever. Oh, man, I want to go back. You see, we don't remember all those times. We selectively remember some of the highlights. They really weren't even that great. But as we look back through the mist of time, it appears so different. You brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. You brought us out here to die. Wait a minute. Remember last chapter, guys. You were at Kadesh Barnea. You were supposed to go into the land of milk and honey. You flaked out. Rebellion. You disobeyed. We will not come up. Moses was very angry. His fuse is burning low. And he said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron. Each of you take his censer, put incense in it. Each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers. And you also and Aaron, each of you with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense in it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. This was like a test, a test by fire. 
It's sort of similar to what happened with Elijah the prophet. And Elijah the prophet, remember, was facing King Ahab, and there were the prophets of Baal and of Ashtoreth, 1 Kings chapter 18. And uh, a lot of the children of Israel had rebelled against God, and they're following the pagan gods and goddesses of the land. And Elijah was gutsy. He said, tell you what, let's have a contest, a contest by fire tomorrow. I'll take a bull, you take a bull, and we'll cut it up on an altar, and you put wood around it, but no fire on it, and let the God who is God answer by fire. Let fire come down from heaven if your God is God and consume your sacrifice. And I'll pray to my God. Let's have a battle of the gods, a showdown. And so the day came, and the prophets of Baal were all dressed up in their regalia, and he said, okay, you guys first. So they started early in the morning till 12 noon and cried out to their God. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. Said nobody answered. Now, Elijah had an edge to him, and he started mocking them. I like Elijah. He thought, I'm going to have a little fun with this. So he goes, hey, you guys, call a little louder. Yell louder. Turn up the volume. You know, you're only on five. Crank it up to ten. Because Baal, well, he's a god, but maybe he's on vacation or he's sleeping or he's busy. And you need to get his attention. Cry louder. So they started getting louder. They started cutting themselves till blood gushed out of their wrists. They were showing their sincerity. Finally, in the afternoon, he said, enough is enough. And he prayed a simple, short prayer of 25 words in the English language. God, go for it, basically is the prayer. Show yourself that you are God. Glorify yourself. Boom, fire fell from heaven, consumed not only the uh, sacrifice, but the wood, and licked up all the water. And Elijah smoked them, basically. Went after them. So it was a contest. This is that kind of a contest. The battle of the gods. Except this is group of people who say they believe in God, but they're rebelling against the order of God. They took their censer, laid incense on it, and they stood there. Korah gathered, verse 19, all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Now just note that. Very many times we've already read, whenever God shows up in glory, it's not always a good thing. It's not like, I'm here and I'm happy. It's, I'm here, and I'm about to judge you. Moses cried out and said, God, I want to see your glory. God said, if you see it, you'll be dead, Moses. So God showed up in great power. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces. Second time. And they said, O oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I got to hand it to Moses. If I were Moses, after having people from my own family, my own leadership, and then all the people come against me when I didn't even ask for the job, but I was just obeying God and they rebelled this much. 
I think if God said, stand back, I'm going to wipe them out, I would have said, amen. Amen. Please, Lord, go for it. But here he still has a heart of mercy. Remember a few chapters back, it says Moses was the meekest man in all of the earth. I think this proves it. Lord, it's Korah's fault. He's the guy that started the rebellion. Deal with him, but not the whole congregation. Would you wipe them all out because of one man? Notice the way it's put, by the way. Oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. When God made man, he formed man out of the elements, the dust of the earth. And then he breathed into man and made him a living being. Nefesh in the Hebrew, a living soul. The body, apart from the life of God, is lifeless. The real you is not your body. Aren't you grateful for that the older you get? We often equate the real us with our bodies. We spend so much time making, making them look good and young, and it's a losing battle. We will one day go the way of all the earth. The real you is what's behind your body. Your body is simply a medium to convey who you are. Your spirit is the real you. Your body is a tent. It's wearing out. Paul called it a tent. I love tents. I love camping. But I don't like doing it for, you know, longer than a couple weeks, max. When you're out there in the wilderness and you've got a backpack on and you're taking on the vast domain of the American Southwest or the Rocky Mountains, it's exhilarating. But when you don't have a shower for three, four, five, six, seven, eight days in a row, and you start smelling pretty ripe, and you start feeling pretty sticky, and uh, you're, you know, just the simple things of life are hard to do, just cooking and setting up camp. And as fun as it is, it gets old quickly. You want something permanent. And one day, God will have you exchange your temporary tent for a permanent building, 2 Corinthians 5. We know that when this tent is dissolved, we have a building from God, not made with hands eternal in the heavens. I like that saying of Moses, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. For the body without the spirit is dead. Should you be angry with all of the congregation? Now, I think that Moses foreshadows Jesus Christ right here. It was Jesus' style to intercede for sinners, right? Thief on the cross. The two thieves on the cross, both of whom leveled criticisms and accusation along with the crowds of Jesus Christ. Save yourself. Save us. Yet on the cross, Jesus prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Such a tremendous prayer. Father, forgive them. You know how odd that sounded to Roman soldiers? They'd watched thousands of Jews being crucified up to that point. They heard swearing, cussing. Get me out of here. I'm innocent. I didn't do it. They've never heard someone on the cross say, Father, forgive them. You'd expect them to say, Father, judge them. Or, wait till after the resurrection, buddy. I'll come after you. But, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. That's so beautiful. A few weeks ago, I was in a hospital room with somebody that became an acquaintance of mine. 
He knew Franklin Graham when he was younger. They kind of had episodes of chumming around together. And uh, he was a rebellious guy. He was raised in Cuba. I won't go through his background. It's unnecessary. But he came to hear Franklin when he was here preaching. And afterwards, Franklin and I took him in my office and we shared with him the gospel. We said, Tony, how are you with Jesus Christ? We got, you know, right in his face and shared it with him directly. And, you know, he kind of tiptoed around. Well, you know, I, I have nothing against Jesus. I just can't say Jesus is the only way. I think he's a fine person, a good teacher. I have nothing against him. But there are many roads to God. You know, the divine highway, the smorgasbord approach. And so we continued to share and he just kind of put us off and few weeks later, as his cancer had progressed to almost its final stages, I went to his hospital room. And there he was in bed. He had just had some of his tests, and it was terminal. He didn't have much time to live. And I told him about Jesus again. And he said, but how could it be that easy that I could just call upon him and he would forgive me in an instant? How is that possible? My background, you started, you know, I've had a sordid background. You don't know my background. I said, Tony, on the cross, to the people that deserve punishment, to a murderer and an insurrectionist, and to the crowd who put him on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he said to the thief who called on him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Tony, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. When you die because you believe in me, you will go to paradise. And then he started in the hospital bed, breaking down like a little baby. He wept. And he just looked at me through his tears and he said, that's the most beautiful thing that anyone could ever say. Here's Jesus, so perfect, he said, on the cross, saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. You mean it's forgiven, the past is gone? Absolutely. Any man in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things become new. Here's Moses interceding for the people, and God stays his judgment. Here's Jesus interceding for the people. Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Now, there's a difference between sinning ignorantly and sinning when you know what you're doing. This is not a blanket statement. Forgive all the world. We are the world. One planet, one people, please. But the idea here is when you sin ignorantly, it's different than when you know what you're doing. I have people all the time, what about the the pygmies in Africa? Actually, they're in Borneo, but who's getting detailed? What about the people who've never heard the gospel? What about you? You have. God will be just. What about you? You have. You do know better. I don't think God's going to consign people to hell who've never had an opportunity. But what about America, who's had an opportunity? And so the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, Abiram. Moses rose up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And the showdown and the judgment we'll read about next time. Showdown at the OK Corral, out there in the wilderness of Sinai. God did listen to Moses. God did forgive the children of Israel. And only those who led the rebellion were the ones who were judged. You know that God hates to judge. It's not in God's heart. 
I don't know why, but people picture God as he's up there like waiting. Yeah. Oh, look at that person made a mistake. I can't wait. Yeah. Oh, God hates to judge. People will say, how could a loving God send people to hell? He didn't make hell for people. He made hell for the devil and his angels. That's their place. It wasn't intended for people. But if a person makes a concerted effort to go there and rejects God's provision, God will honor their choice. He won't force you to heaven. He offers salvation. Tonight, he would say to you, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He'd love to say to you, you'll be with me in paradise. But like the thief on the cross, you have to be willing to come to him to put your faith in him. Have you ever thought about it? There's two guys, the two thieves on the cross. Jesus is in the middle. One on the right, one on the left. Both of them equally close to Christ. One is saved, one is lost. How is that possible? One built a bridge by faith, and Jesus closed that gap by his love and his sacrifice on the cross. You know, everybody here in this room tonight, many of you are Christians. It could be, though, that you were invited by a friend, and here we all are. We're sitting in the same chairs, listening to the same thing, enjoying the same great music. But could it be that there is a separation so close and some are so far? So close to Christ, right there. One passed into eternity without Christ. The other was in paradise that day because he believed. He didn't work for it. He didn't say, hey, get me off this cross. I'll go get baptized and I'll work really hard. I'll join a church. And then... I'll earn my way. No, you just, you'll be there. Don't worry. You've placed your trust and your faith in me. You'll be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the way your word so wonderfully portrays the good examples and the bad examples. The bad example of Korah, the good example of Moses, the supreme example of Jesus Christ who loves to extend forgiveness, who would intercede on behalf of an insurrectionist, a murderer, desiring to grant the ultimate miracle of forgiveness. And Lord, it's a marvel that in one fell swoop, our slate can be wiped clean. We can know Jesus Christ personally. Lord, I pray that we would not rest on the laurels of, I attend church, I go to Calvary Chapel. I've always believed in God all my life. I'm a good person. Lord, tonight, if we're not standing on the solid rock where we've realized that we are sinners, we've asked you to forgive us of our sins, and we've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, if we haven't done that, Lord, would you just woo us to yourself, draw us by your love? We know that you want to extend forgiveness to all of us. Would you do that tonight as we, like a thief on the cross, would cry out? That example of Moses is so touching, but even more touching is the one that he represented, Christ. As we close the service tonight, maybe you have come to this service tonight, this church, and 
had a great time so far. It's been interesting. It's been enervating, and you've enjoyed it. But you can't admit in your heart, you can't be sure that you have a real relationship with God. You couldn't say with all sincerity and and security, if I die tonight, I'm going to be in the presence of God. But you'd love more than anything to do that. You would love to know that God holds nothing against you. All is forgiven. Well, you can know that tonight. But you must receive God's forgiveness. And if you're here tonight and you're not certain about your stand with God, but you would like to receive Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that you could never live, and then he died for your sins. If you'd like to receive eternal life, then receive Jesus Christ tonight. And if you're here and you'd like to do that, I'd like you to raise your hand right now. And I'll acknowledge it and pray for you, and we'll close this service. Keep it up so I can see it. God bless you right over here. And you right over in the middle, ma'am. And that girl has her hand raised. And over here to the left. Anybody else? Just raise it up. God sees your heart. God knows you. God knows where you're at. Raise your hand up. We'll pray as a congregation for you right there in the middle. Anyone else? Over here on the side. Right over here. A few of you right there in the middle. Anybody else? Now's the time to do it. Do business with God. Raise your hand up. Out there in the back. Father, we thank you for these. And we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that as they follow through with that commitment that you would fill them with assurance of salvation, assurance of forgiveness, and your joy and peace that surpasses all understanding. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.